Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Dissecting Docs with producer, author Carol Dean and actor-journalist Dr. John Don Schwartz shares reviews of excellent documentaries. Dr. Schwartz's book, Telling Their Own Stories, Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His film reviews and his filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com. And today, five incredible documentaries are covered by Don and by Carol Dean, producer of this show. And those films are Widowmaker, The Stormmakers, Greenwich Village, Music That Defines a Generation, Real Engine, and we are honored to have the producer and director of the film, 1971. But first, the reviews of the film will cover first, and then a discussion with Joanna Hamilton about the production of this important historical documentary, 1971. And Carol, Widowmaker is quite a title. It really makes you want to know more. Uh, Yes. It's on the issue of health, I think it's probably one of the most important films of 2015. So, Don, give us your review. Okay, the official title of the film is The Widowmaker. It is directed by Patrick Forbes uh, uh, from the United Kingdom, and it's narrated by actress Gillian Anderson. And before I say anything else, this film is unusual. You can, it, you can find it anywhere, Google Play, Amazon, Netflix, Voodoo, Xbox. I just want to emphasize the filmmaker has done everything he can to make sure people can find this film. Uh, It is uh, four stories in one film. The first story is the uh, creation and the development of an inexpensive heart scan that can show whether or not you have calcium deposits in the arteries of your heart. And uh, if you do, the patient and doctor can talk about how to handle it. Then the other story is about the creation and development of stents, which are devices, most people know about this, that if you have a blocked coronary artery, you just stick a, this device in it and it, and it, it uh, makes the artery work. And the third story is a debate at the highest echelons of the medical industrial complex about these two procedures. The stent procedure is very expensive. It's an elaborate procedure, and it costs tens of thousands of dollars at least. And once you have a stent in an artery, uh, that artery cannot be replaced with uh, another artery, which is the typical uh, surgical procedure. Uh, the, the heart scan is inexpensive, less than $500. And the, the heart scan is about... Uh, preventative about about finding out if there is a problem, and the the advocates of the stent procedure did not want the inexpensive heart scan to be covered by insurance. And the creation of the developers of the stent wanted that to be covered because the surgeons and the hospitals make a lot of money off of it. And this debate went on for close to four decades, and during that time, four million Americans died of sudden, unanticipated heart attacks. These are people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. They're healthy. They're normal. There was not a single sign that, that they were about to die. And the good news in, in this film is that uh, the heart scan is starting to be covered now. And this film is so powerful that the fourth story, I said there's four stories. The fourth story is a lot of stories. Uh, uh, Forbes, the filmmaker, has people, survivors of those who died, talk about their experience of losing their loved ones. And 
this is one of those films that when it was over, I just sat there stunned, and I resolved to get myself a heart scan. And because all these deaths, I mean, not all of them, but they could have, many, if not most, could have been prevented by a simple, inexpensive heart scan. And uh, uh, Carol, what did you think? Oh, I'm totally in agreement with you. I I think uh, Widowmaker is a film with a purpose. And it, Patrick Forbes in his director's statement says, uh, for once, I'm not looking for a shiny statue or a glowing review. Instead, I'm hoping that out of all the people who see this film, just one thinks, maybe I should check how my heart is. I know I don't feel bad and I'm fit and healthy, but as we point out, people like you, my friend, uh, die in the millions all around the world, and it need not and should not happen. I think this film is really wonderful because it exposes the greed in the United States medical industry. If you ever thought that there might be some involved, you can be sure of it when you watch this film. Medicine, which should be to heal, has become part of the medicine for profit. The film clearly exposes the power of a few to control the lives of millions. So after years of research, this heart scan machine was invented, which can show calcium in the heart, and that's been the silent killer. Now, the preventative diagnosis machine was kept from us by the greedy medical elite. So to understand how important this is, here's a quote from Bruce Brundage. He's a professor uh, emeritus at UCLA who is referring to the current diagnosis of heart disease, and he says you can have all the risks and not have coronary disease, or you could have none of the risk factors and have coronary disease. But if you have a coronary scan and you see calcium, that you know you have a disease. It's not a risk factor now. It's looking at part of the disease factor. And it was the film's funder, David Bobbitt, at 51 years old, uh, he was considered healthy. And he took this test and found that with his level of calcium, he was 75 to 100% likely to have a sudden heart attack. So he used this scan and this numerical value created by the Calcium Club to contain his calcium levels. Uh, he changed his eating habits and his lifestyle, and he maintained his status. He didn't get any worse, and he is a very happy man. This gave him the information he needed to make these changes to prevent a sudden heart attack. And calcium scans, uh, for your information down there, non-invasive. Uh, so I think there's this is something wonderful, and I'm researching for a place to go down here in L.A. Ventura. And I think we, we really have to get this film out to people to realize that that's what's so strange about it when somebody drops dead and you think, how could that happen? One of my film friends was only 50 and gorgeous and healthy, and I had lunch with him. He was in great spirits, and he looked like the picture of health one day, and he was gone in a week. So I think that this is really an important film. And I sincerely appreciate Patrick Forbes for making this film, along with the rest of his crew. So let's uh, let's go to the next film, The Star Makers. What did you think of that? Oh, this is a very powerful film. It's about trafficking, sex trafficking. But there's been there's been Hollywood movies about sex trafficking. There are news reports and articles, statistics, demographics. And uh, that happens uh, frequently, you hear that stuff. But this is a film about a particular girl who is trafficked. And it is, it is uh, jaw-dropping. It is extremely disturbing. So, again, the title is The Storm Makers, and it's written and directed and shot by Guillaume Souan, S-U-O-N, and it's distributed by First Run Features. And, again, it's not a sterile news report. It's, it's about a Cambodian mother who sold her 16-year-old daughter, Aya, to an agent. And the agent was supposed to find work for Aya, some, some domestic work in another country. And then the agent in Cambodia sent her to Malaysia, where there was another agent 
who was supposed to find a specific work. But instead, that agent confiscated Aya's passport, sold her into slavery, where she was beaten, raped, and abused for two years. And she escaped. And I, don't, I imagine she's one in the minority of those who escape. And uh, she tells her story on camera. And she tells her story in a quiet, peaceful, neutral tone. But her words scream and yell. And after you know, the 80 minutes or so of this film, I just feel like I was touched, so completely touched by this woman and infuriated by what happened to her and what must be happening to millions, if not tens of millions of little girls over the last many decades, and it's still happening now. This this is a film that uh, that needs to be seen because it's, it's, it's kept away from us. The, the statistics and the Hollywood movies don't bring it to us. This is a story that gets to your heart. Again, it's called The Storm Makers, and it's distributed by First Run. You know, Don, how do you think that the filmmaker was able to get this trafficker at his private club to explain the whole business of trafficking, which he did in great detail? Well, he was representing himself as somebody who finds you legitimate work. And I I think the reason he was able to go on camera is he's very much impressed by himself. And he (laughs) he wanted to show off his... His success, he wanted to show off his body and his lifestyle, and he had all the sound bites for what he's really doing and, and what, what the other agents do he has no control of. Uh, that that uh, serves to, to, root, uh, to, to, to root the story, to, to show you the system uh, up close and personal of, of what, what goes on. Another thing about the film is the, the, the when the Aya returned after escaping, she she uh, she didn't bring back any money. The whole purpose of sending your, her daughter off was to make money for the family, but she did bring back a little boy. And first of all, uh, 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 she the last thing that she needed was a little boy. A little boy, and that little boy seemed to be uh, not not receiving love from either mother or grandmother because it, w- it was a symbol of a horror and that, that added to the horror of this movie and another, another element to be considered is w- when the girls got pregnant I know Don I know you really got a taste for what that word trafficking really means it's, it's, uh, I just found I thought Swan did a, an a wonderful job. This is a despicable tale of people who prey on kind, uneducated Cambodians. Uh, he captures the confessions of this demonic. Uh, what is he? He was like a narcissist, narcissist on camera. This human trafficker shows no remorse for entrapping uneducated people into slavery, even from his own neighborhood. It's unbelievable. He is he's like a rich villain who lives a comfortable life and and his unsuspecting victims are illegally smuggled into neighboring countries for supposedly good paying jobs only to find that they've been duped. Half a million Cambodians work abroad and one third of them have been sold as slaves to give you an idea of how bad this is. In uh Thailand, Malaysia and in Taiwan, that's where they're mostly sold. Most of these are um, migrants or women. Some become maids uh, in Malaysia or workers in Thailand. Many are sold as prostitutes, and some of the men work in the shrimp market. Uh, But they're all exploited in horrible working conditions. Uh, And the traffickers are looking mostly for backward people who can't read or write, who have no jobs and no future. And uh, sometimes these poor people even pay the trafficker for what they think will be a good job to support them and their family. So it's such a shock to the family when these people walk away. They 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 think they're going to a fantastic job, and then the family is looking for money to come back, which it doesn't. 
the Cambodians call traffickers storm makers because when they arrive in a village, they bring the storms and the tears with them. And and the film tells us that they actually sell people by whole villages. Um, the film says they have no mercy. They only love money. I think that's an incredible statement to make. So I'm just hoping that more people get to see this film so that we can do everything we can to stop trafficking. Uh, the the police must know that this is going on in those countries. I don't know how it happens so often. But anyway, I, I found this technically to be a very well filmed, very well edited, shot, uh, good story, good emotional feeling to the story. So the filmmaker did an excellent job. And how they got the trafficker on camera to admit everything he was doing is beyond me, but it was brilliant. So I totally agree with you. This is a great film. Now, um, talk to me about Greenwich Village. Greenwich Village. You know, you know when you uh, make it a point to see documentary films, you have to uh, deal with the horrors that we deal with when we watch them. And so you have to choose once in a while a film that's just fun, a film that's entertaining. And this is entertaining. Greenwich Village, music that defined a generation. It's directed by Laura Archibald, A-R-C-H-I-B-A-L-D, and it's distributed by Kino Borber, but I found it on Netflix. And uh, Archibald, Laura Archibald, covers Greenwich Village in the late 50s and early 60s, and that was, that was a time of, of political activism and turmoil and I would say the beginning of, of decades of that kind of activism. But it's also a time of of uh of just the birth of superstars uh Carly Simon, Joni Mitchell, Judy Collins, Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger who was a, a lifetime uh, performer of course uh and, and so Archibald covers covers uh, the behind the behind the scenes stories she co- she shows clips of performances and it it was just so much fun and delightful to see this, and it made me nostalgic. I actually had a, had a conversation with my friend to ask about the word nostalgia, because usually you get nostalgic for something that you miss in your life. Well, I was 12 years old and, uh, and living in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, I was listening to songs about small yellow bikinis or purple people eaters, and these, these uh, people, I wish I had been 22 years old and living in Greenwich Village and part of that community of artists and activists and performers and uh it was uh, so this is a totally fun film it, it it could have been twice as long i could have seen a lot more clips and seen a lot more especially interviews of of people behind the scenes that they're not known people i never heard of before and my favorite my favorite performance of all those performances was a duet between buffy st marie and andy williams buffy st marie the uh a Native American uh, folk singer-songwriter, and Andy Williams, a middle, middle, middle American uh, TV star. And do, the two of them were doing an anti-war song. That was just jaw-dropping. And, uh, again, I found Greenwich Village Music that Defined a Generation on Netflix. And uh, what would you think? That's wonderful. I love the ability you can download these films now. I'll tell you, um, I uh, thought, well, okay, Don told me to watch it. It was a good film. So I uh, sat down and turned on this incredible film. And you're into this film in the first minute. The first thing that's said is like, wow, I'm into this. And then next, the titles and the names of the singers come up, and they're all animated, brilliantly colored, and you are glued to the set. It covers the music people who lived in the '60s, uh, and they and it was, you know, these people were really dedicated, heartwarming stories explaining how that these people's focus and dedication really brought us great American music. And they some of like uh, Dylan when they were talking about Dylan, and how he started out and became such a great singer writer. Uh, he had it inside him. But 
being, I think being in that group of people, and it was like a little nest, and they were just hatching all these musical geniuses. Anyway, I think it's one of the top music docs I've seen lately. Uh, to me, it showed us how the 60s was a freewheeling time in the village, and people found all over the world, they found that the history of Bohemia was enticing, and they came to be part of this freedom in music, art, and voice. Throughout the film, you'll see the village is a major explosion of American art. All the artists, songwriters, actors, musicians, playwrights, they wanted to get into the village and live there so they could play in the clubs and hang out, drink coffee with other artists, and be a free thinker. Anything goes in that scene. You can just imagine it. And they talk about how music can create unity. And I believe that our 1960s music was America's expression of their individuality, their love of the historical songs, songs that came down from the hills and out of the farmland. And these songs really defined America as a brilliant artistic force. I highly recommend this Greenwich Village for all of you who love music. There's so many great artists that you'll be glued to your seat. Fix your food before you start that film because you won't want to pause it. It's so good. Now, the next film is Real Engine. So tell us what you thought, Don. Well, Carol, Carol, you made me see this movie. I never heard of it before. But when you tell me to see a movie, I I see it, and I'm very grateful for it. Again, it's called Real Engine. Real is spelled R-E-E-L. The subtitle is On the Trail of the Hollywood Indian. And it's directed by Neil Diamond, but not that Neil Diamond. This is Neil Diamond, a Native American from Canada. And he's covering the image of Native Americans beginning in the late 1990s as depicted in film. And there are a total of at least 4,000 films over the more than the last 100 years that feature Native Americans. And... He shows the what I call the evolution and the devolution of the images that are portrayed of Native Americans, and 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 Diamond won the Peabody Award for this film. It just shows you how serious and what a what a well done job he did in in presenting the story. Uh, there's several names that are uh, that are prominent in the film. Uh, most of the names I never heard of before, but I want to say them. Sasheen Littlefeather, John Trudell, Russell Means, Chris Iyer, Clint Eastwood, Jim Jarmusch, and Robbie Robertson. And John Trudell died recently on December 8th uh, of this year. And I, I think this is a must-see film because I think the, the, the treatment of Native Americans uh, by us, by American society, is still a shame. It, it, it's still a travesty, and this is another film I think that's very important to see to to understand what's been going on. Uh, the film is easy to get to. It's on Netflix. It's on eBay. You can buy it on eBay. It's on Amazon, and you can uh, help yourself by going to the website Real Engine the Movie. Uh, that's dot com. Real Engine the Movie dot com, and it's just eighty five minutes long. But I could have taken another 85 minutes because it had so much to say and uh that's it carol well i think you're spot on i really enjoyed it um the opening of the film there's the the american indians are saying that as children watching old westerns they were cheering for the cowboys never realizing that the indians on tv were depicting them because they didn't know they didn't understand that. That's us. So immediately you realize how powerful film is for creating and maintaining a myth. And that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to show you how you've been fed a lot of information and stereotypes about Indians. I think it's an important film that tells us uh, through a history of motion pictures how Hollywood's fantasy about Indians created many myths. 
the filmmakers say that this fantasy will always be part of the belief system about Indians. Uh, for example, to us, Crazy Horse was literally a crazy person, when to the Indians, he was a horse trainer uh, whose land was being invaded. And uh, so to to his people, Crazy Horse is an idea, and he's the embodiment of the human spirit, a way sure of what can be done when you're centered in yourself as a human being. So the film covers the birth of the Hollywood engine through the films that we saw. They cover the noble engine, the savage, bloodthirsty engine, the groovy engine, and my favorite was Clint Eastwood's film, The Outlaw, Josie Wales, with Chief Dan George. It was so funny. And that made Indians real people. And it shattered a lot of myths that we have about Indians. And I also liked the, uh, learning the backstory of how Little Feather received Marlon Brando's Oscar at the Academy Awards. made a lot of sense to me after I heard the story for, uh, from the other side. And, Don, you may remember in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that wonderful performance by Will Sampson as a stoic Indian who was silent in the movie. Now, see, he portrayed the Indians with dignity, and he actually reclaimed that character of the Indian for all of us. This was the beginning of a change of portrayal of Indians by Hollywood. So I really enjoyed the film. It was photographed well. Uh, truly, it was well edited, and uh, and it made its point. Yeah, Carol, I want to say one more thing. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the film goes over all the images, and it comes to a conclusion. And the conclusion is what Native Americans want in terms of their depiction is they want their stories, and they want to perform their stories. And they, and, and they don't want an image. They consider themselves human beings, and that's what they want us to see. Yes, and we're getting there with some of the uh, the late films that the Indians are making. Some They're making some great films. We need more of those. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, because I wanted to say right now that in our Roy Dean film grant, I really love films made by Indians, film stories about Indians, true stories, that show Indians as human beings and just exactly like us in the trials and tribulations they go through in their life. So I'm looking for that for the Roy Dean Film Grant. So anyone who's working on a film like that, please check our website, fromtheheartproductions.com, and look at the grant opportunities. Well, okay, so let's get into um, what's our next film. Oh, Great. Um, I did want to say one more thing. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, was one of my favorite films, and I was so happy to see the Indian turn into the hero in the film. And that was the beginning of Hollywood turning around, changing their whole concept and bringing us more Indians as real people. Now, the most important part of the show today is this incredible historical events from the film 1971. This is a story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. This is told in a most engaging way, and it unfolds like a thriller. Each segment takes you to the next shocking event, and all of it builds on the main event from the from an underreported Media Pennsylvania break in in 1971. This is the event that Hoover wanted to just go away. There are many riveting events that keep the story moving forward all the way to the Nixon cover up. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a heretofore untold story of Americans who I believe are heroes. So tell me your review, Don. Oh, thank you, Carol. Uh- First of all, this is an example of why you've got to watch documentary films. If, if I hadn't made a hobby of finding them and seeing them, uh, how, would, how would I have ever found this film? And the story in this film is incredible. It, I mean, it, it, should not be, uh, it, it should not be buried, and in, in thanks to uh, jo- Joanna Hamilton that it's not being buried. But we've got to make sure that we let, get the word out about these films and 1971. So, draw, well, this is, when this film started, 
after the first 10 minutes, I thought, wow, there's going to have to be a Hollywood narrative based on the, the events in the story. So this is about a small group of upstanding citizens, conscientious citizens, in 1971 in Little Media, Pennsylvania. And it was a time when there were a lot of local FBI offices throughout the United States. And this is a time uh, near the end of J. Edgar Hoover's reign of terror in the FBI. And this group of people decided to reveal all the shenanigans, the, the malfeasance that the FBI was conducting. And they formed a group. They, they somewhat laughingly called themselves the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, but it also was a realistic name, too. And they broke in to their local office, and they anonymously released uh, in just, in just incriminating evidence, piles of incriminating evidence of illegal activities, uh, the, the, the uh, surveillance of, of uh, citizens just simply uh, practicing their, their First Amendment rights, uh, and, and the uh, interference with people practicing their First Amendment rights. And the, the break-in, again, was done by normal, upstanding people, and these were, these were families. These were couples, and one family had young children. And what they did, if they had been caught, th these uh, adults would have spent the prime of their lives in jail, in prison. And so it's a very high-stake high stake story. And... Uh, and, and now it's come out because the statute of limitation is over. So they can come out now. And, and they were kept secret uh, by a, 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 in part supported by a lawyer who helped them uh, maintain their anonymity. Uh, the film is released by First Run Features, and it has a special feature of uh, an 85-minute uh, meeting of the Citizens Commission, like uh, decades later, and they have... Edward Snowden uh, appeared by satellite uh, at this meeting. So when you buy this film for first-run features, you're getting two movies in one. And, uh, I, again, I was, I was stunned by this story. And if I was a mogul and if uh, Ms. Hamilton agreed, I, I would uh, greenlight a narrative version of it. And uh, so we have uh, Anna Hamilton with us today. Hi, Don. Hello, Joanna. Welcome. And, Thank you uh, so much. Oh, oh, you're welcome. And, Carol, uh, you want to start with some questions? Yes, Joanna. I I really loved your film. I have to say that the title, 1971, I thought, oh, well, what happened in 71? I don't remember anything special. But anyway, um, it looks like a good film. But as soon as I started watching it, it was like, oh, my heavens, look at this, look at this. And then that happened, and then that happened. There's so many important uh, events that this caused to happen, all the way up to um, the uh, Nixon Watergate scandal. I think well, we have to go through them all, but I think Graham getting involved early on, having the courage to print the information, the illegal information she was given, where the mm -hmm. New York Times or the L.A. Times wouldn't print it. She printed it, and making that bold stand and getting away with it was probably what gave her the courage to bring us the Nixon situation. Yeah. Well, I, this is a major uh, uh, event in history that was totally overlooked, so... Yes, right. I want to know, how did you find the story? I mean, I, I mean, I agree with 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 everything you said, Carol. I did. It was just an immense privilege to be able to tell this little known or completely unknown piece of American history that was, uh, comparatively speaking, you know, so small and potentially so insignificant. A break in of a small FBI office outside Philadelphia that had such huge political repercussions. Um, you know, we wouldn't know, uh, you know, without these, these individuals, as, as, as Don was saying, you know, these very ordinary citizens, you know, who, who were academics, uh, community activists, um, fine, upstanding people who had never, you know, you know I mean, they, they were perhaps, you know, certainly uh, involved with the anti-war um, 
movement in general and had participated, some of them, in some draft board raids. But aside from that, you know, none of them had committed a crime ever. So, you know, they trained themselves for this one night of crime, which is incredibly high stakes. They break in on a hunch. It's an educated hunch, but it's a hunch nonetheless. They actually don't really know what they're going to find. And, and lo and behold, they sort of really do, you know, it, it's a slow burn story, but they really do hit the jackpot um, in terms of, of what, what is revealed. But if, as you, as you um, so aptly say, um, it's Catherine Graham at the Washington Post, um, you know, by publishing the information, they send these documents to a couple of politicians and, and three newspapers. And ultimately, it's only the Washington Post that publishes um, these, these, you know, the contents of these stolen documents and reports on it. Um, ben Bradley uh, is, is largely credited with persuading Catherine Graham to do that. So he, he really is sort of, a, you know, the, the living hero that um, everyone made him out to be. Um, you know, you mentioned the title. It's funny, we, we went back and forth on the title for a very long time. Um, I had uh, different different titles. and I mean, one of the concerns while I was making the, the film was that we weren't sure how the government was going to react to these people stepping out into the spotlight for the first time. And so I wanted to keep it very uh, undercover, under wraps. And so the, hence the sort of the, the, how innocuous the title um, was. And, and uh, you know, at one point I contemplated t- uh, term, uh, you know, titling it um, Behind Every Mailbox because that was what was in one of the documents. And, uh, you know, I sort of went back and forth with various um, people and they said, you know, that sort of sounds like, you know, behind your, your email inbox. And then, you know, lo and behold, as we were finishing editing the film, we knew that to be true because of the revelations uh, of Edward Snowden. Um, but I came to the story through the journalist at the Washington, Washington Post to whom the Citizens Commission leaked the documents. Uh, her name is Betty Metzger, and she um, she obviously had been a reporter back in the day, had written various stories, and then she'd gone off and, and, and uh, lived a life as a journalism professor um, and done many wonderful things. And uh, she and I have uh, became friends about 15 years ago. And even sort of on our first meeting, she shared with me that she was researching this in- incredible story, and I thought it was incredible the first second I heard about it. I mean, she shared the outlines of the story with me. I didn't know anything about who they were. Um, and, you know, over the course of, of years, literally, I sort of urged her to, to let me know when she was ready to make a film because I, you know, fervently believed there was a film there. And then there came a point about five years ago now where she called me up and, you know, asked if I was serious. And I, I said, of course. And, and from there, we really, um, I, I joined her on the last um, few years of, of her writing a book. And so we collaborated. We shared all our primary um, research materials. I obviously benefited enormously from all her years of work, um, including um, her her Freedom of Information Act to um, requesting the FBI's investigative um, file, which was 35,000 pages. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was one of the largest investigations, actually. I mean, it was kept kept very quiet, um, but it was one of the FBI's largest investigations after the JFK. And they never, um, this is the whole thing, they never caught these eight conscientious Americans that actually took the risk to get the documents. That's right. It was extraordinary. I mean, uh, you know, Hoover died a year later. I mean, I think it was one of the great frustrations he must have taken to his grave that they were never caught. Um, they, I, you know, I, I, I'm convinced that, you know, they imagined that, of course, they would. You know, there were 150 agents that flooded the Philadelphia area, and they were not able to catch them. I mean, all uh, of the eight people who, who were part of the group, um, seven were on the list of suspects. Um, one of them just never was, and that's sort of an interesting story in and of itself, but because she was, ironically, the only person that they had a sketch of. Um, so interesting. I mean, it was a, a woman who went in to case the office uh, sort of perhaps speaks to the sexism of the time precisely. You know, no one could ever imagine that, you know, somebody like that, you know, seemingly so innocent. Um but I mean, you know, I think it's a case of you know they they spread the net very wide. Um, there were enormous numbers of people who were potential suspects because, uh, you know, there were just an enormous number of people who were politically active then, and particularly in Philadelphia, uh, which is sort of a real hotbed of, of the uh, anti-Vietnam War um, movement back back then, and. Um, 
you know, they the, the day after, they sort of also took themselves off on a, on a you know, decided that um, a person in Philadelphia uh, was without, without doubt responsible for this break-in, and that, that individual was, was, was completely the wrong person, but the FBI convinced themselves that he was, and so it took them down a path that, um, you know, that was, you know, a total red herring, not to mention that, you know, eventually engendered a whole other criminal case. Um, which is uh, known as the Camden 28 trial, which is featured in the film. And then there is another, there's a whole other movie about that trial, which is super fascinating. And I'd urge um, everybody to, to watch that film too. But basically, the FBI thought that um, they had caught the media burglars when they caught the uh, the Camden 28. And the Camden 28 were a group of draft board um, protests. It was a draft board break-in and they arrested 28 people. But, um, you know, two of the media burglars were members of the Camden 28 group, but they weren't able to, to ferret them out. So, as you say, I think it was, it's, it's quite remarkable that one of the largest FBI investigations in history resulted in, in no arrests. No arrests. Well, and I wonder if um, the power of that break-in and the release of those papers helped the Camden 28 to say, if they did it, we can do it. You wonder about uh, You know, I think that, that there were slightly different elements. Um, certainly, Camden was a much more straightforward draft board break-in. I mean, they were they were they were looking to just destroy. They were looking to destroy draft board uh, draft cards. Then, whereas you know, with the media break-in, they were very specifically looking for uh, you know Ill- illegal activity on behalf of the FBI. So, so quite different. And in fact, that was one of the tricky things with the film is that you know people are very, very familiar with um, anti-Vietnam War activity, with draft board break-ins. You know, there were you know over 350 of those. So, so in many senses, I think people, uh, if they're familiar with the history, they're familiar with draft board break-ins. Um, you know, there was only one FBI break-in. Um, you know, again, which speaks to perhaps why this is so little known. But I, I also think the the um, the reason that this story is so little known is because they were never they were never caught. You know, it would have been a very high profile trial. Uh, they would have be they would be as as famous uh, as notorious as, as Daniel Ellsberg, I think, if they had. And you know, of course, the Pentagon Papers happens, you know, in June of 1971. Right. So as you say, it was a monumental year. <laughs> it was. It was. Well. Um, so I, I now let's talk about Carl Stern because mm. and how we got to him. Give us give the audience some idea of what happened and how he got involved. So, so as I mentioned, I mean, the story was really like pulling a thread. I mean, everything to me sort of seemed to ha- literally hang on a thread. Um, it's such an improbable story because it's so m- any 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 twist and turn could have sort of just, you know, the, everything could have gone both horribly wrong and or the story could have just completely faded away. So, you know, the fact that these guys train themselves for one night of crime, they succeed sort of against all odds. They walk away with these, you know, thousand plus documents. They do find immediately evidence of illegal activity at the highest levels of the FBI. Um, They send those documents to the newspapers and to politicians. One newspaper, you know, as we've discussed, only publishes, but they do publish. It's on the front page of the Washington Post, and then everyone else follows suit. Um, thankfully, you know, but these were the, it's hard to imagine, but these were the very first uh, articles that were critical, really critical of J. Edgar Hoover. You know, he was, he was really revered. I mean, there was a general sense in the country that, you know, certainly if you were politically active, that he, he was not all he was cracked up to be. And he, he was, he was really, you know, enormously disliked in, in, in circles of, you know, uh, people who, you know, stood up against the Vietnam War. But he was also in general, absolutely adored. I mean, there was a reason, you know, he, he, he reigned by, you know, love and, and fear alternately. And, and there was a reason, you know, he'd, he'd by that stage, you know, been director of the FBI for almost 50 years, you know, which is just unheard of today. Um, but uh, when the Washington Post publishes, as we just mentioned, you know, in June, uh, the Pentagon Papers happens. And so I think that's part of the reason that this story um, gets a little, you know, swept away because the Pentagon Papers was absolutely, you know, a, a gigantic story. And then Daniel Ellsberg was caught fairly quickly and put on trial. And so that sort of starts to consume the airways a little bit. But in the process, you know, these documents, the documents from the media break-in uh, are out there. 
Anne Carlston is uh, was the Justice Department um, correspondent for NBC News, uh, a lawyer by training. And he, as he recounts it, one day he he went to the Senate, um, and he was looking to find out a little more about how the Justice Department and the FBI were conducting their um, investigations of anti-Vietnam War protesters. And he shows up in a Senate office, and uh, he he's looking for specific documents. And people tell him, well, uh, you know, let me let me let me take a few minutes, and I'm going to go get you those documents. But while you wait, you know, here is another batch of documents. Perhaps you'd be interested in looking at these. And someone, who knows who this Senate staffer was, but this person handed Carl a sheaf of documents that were all documents that pertain to the media break-in. And uh, so Carl sits there for a few minutes, and one of those documents had... um, was it was a was a, a a directive from the FBI directing um, bureau agents to write anonymous letters to all the campus administrators in the vicinity of Philadelphia. And as you all know, there are an enormous number of universities in that area, Haverford, Villanova, you know, countless uh, pen. Um, and he thought to himself, you know, what what right? Writ that I mean, this is illegal for FBI agents to write anonymous letters, and so he becomes intrigued. And there's a there's a heading uh, on this document, COINTELPRO. So he becomes intrigued, and he decides to find out. And long story, I mean, by this stage, when he's handed this, this these chief of documents, it's almost a year after the break-in, um, and he then decides to investigate. He files several requests with the FBI. Those requests are denied time and time again. He files a Freedom of Information Act that is denied, and finally he decides to sue. And, um, you know, so almost two years on, the FBI is finally forced to release um, all the files that um, pertain to COINTELPRO, which we now know to be uh, the counterintelligence program, which really was conducting surveillance, um, disinformation, harassment um, of, of many, many, many different political groups, uh, you know, most, most notably um, against Martin Luther King and uh, the Black Panthers, uh, but also against the, the, you know, the New Left, the group that was called the New Left, and, you know, the Communist Party and, and even the Ku Klux Klan. It's incredible. It it is remarkable. I mean, you sort of have to marvel at how these acts of, you know, what became an extraordinary act of investigative journalism, you know, I mean, he really remained dogged. He, you know, he had to sue twice to get these documents released. Um, But none of that would have happened if this staffer hadn't handed him that sheaf of papers. It's amazing how these little things turn into Mm -hmm. something wonderful. Well, um, I want to compliment you on your reenactments. I'm assuming that uh, where the woman went into the FBI office, that was all reenactment. That's right. We did decide to use reenactments, um, which I know is a little uh, controversial. They're not everyone's cup of tea. Um, But uh, I, I felt that, you know, you know, we've spoken a lot about how just how little known this story was. And, you know, I, I didn't want it to be unknown uh, anymore. And so... I felt that perhaps a group of, um, you know, people who, who, who were describing this event 40 years ago, um, and, you know, they're so, what sort of characterizes the group is there uh, is an absence of ego. They're really not um, bombastic individuals at all. You know, they return to their normal lives. Um, I have to say, since the book and the film have come out, their lives have li- literally remained unchanged. Um, so, you know, they were describing what they'd done in a very matter-of-fact kind of way. And so, you know, cinema is such an immersive experience. I really wanted people to be able to put themselves in their shoes, which is why I decided to go for the reenactments. But, you know, and we, and we hope, you know, if people have something to criticize, they immediately go to the reenactments. But hopefully, you know, for, for most people, they really do work and they sort of they ena- enable you to, to really kind of be there in the moment with them. Exactly. I enjoyed that very much. And you had just, re- it felt like I was at 1950 in the black and white, and she's mm-hmm. sitting there with her uh, gl- big glasses and all this. It was so real. And Wonderful. all the old filing cabinets, you know, took you back to the day. And you could imagine that how important everything was in the filing cabinets, not stored, and you don't have to try to break into someone's computer. All you have to do is get in the office. Um, it was very good, and I loved it when they went out. They just put the suitcases in their car and drove off. It was so well planned because you took us to the planning meetings, and we saw them, and these were all highly intelligent, uh, very level-headed people. That's right. Uh, so we were really able to get into the understanding of uh, how, what a simple 
They turned it into a simple situation, no fanfare, just get in, get the papers, put them in the suitcases, get out, we're in perfect shape. And then then they were shocked when they started reading things. I loved it when you had them reading stuff and saying, wait, listen to this, wait, look what I found. <laughs> all of that was exactly what happened. And then, right. and then we were really hooked into the story much better than had you told that with, with the even stills or through an interview. This is much more powerful. I'm so glad you feel that way. Yeah, I mean, I felt it was really a film about, you know, civic courage and people who risked everything on this on this hunch. Uh, you know, and lo and behold, they were right. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they, they took a stand at great risk for themselves, but that, you know, ultimately benefited, um, you know, American democracy enormously. Exactly. Well, uh, Don, please ask Joanna questions. Okay. Uh, Joanna, I want to know about response, response from your people that have seen the movie, response from any levels of government and politicians and journalists who have seen the film. And uh, please let me know what you've, you've, what you've seen and heard. Yeah, thanks, Don. I mean, we were, as I mentioned, you know, because we weren't sure how the government was going to react, because, you know, it was, um, you know, such a high-profile investigation back in the day, even though they kept it very low-key, it was very high-profile internally to the FBI, um, and they'd never been found, uh, we weren't sure how how they'd feel. And and I, I really felt very strongly that the tone of the film couldn't be seen to be goading the FBI. I mean, I really felt strongly that obviously it was it was their story, uh, told very much from their perspective. We do have a couple of FBI agents in the film, and I'm very glad that we do. Uh, but it was this was not a you know a sort of thumb your nose at them. It was really kind of a careful look at, at what these individuals had done and the impact, the ramifications of their actions, which were enormous. But. Um, when they stepped out and when we had the you know the premiere i was incre- just generally being incredibly gratified i imagined that there would be uh there might be more people you know they might they might receive some hate mail um some crank calls uh and i have to say there's been none of that absolutely not i mean i sort of advised them all to kind of delist their phone numbers from the phone book and none of them did um, and they haven't received those crank phone calls. It's, a, it's been an immense relief, quite the inverse. You know, uh, we've we've traveled with the film, you know, a, a lot, you know, to, to festivals, and then it was uh, it was in theaters, and uh, you know, across the board, there've been sort of standing ovations, um, and uh, people, you know, walking up to them in, to the, in the street and you know, thanking them for their actions. And you know, as I mentioned, it, this hasn't changed them as individuals. They've just, I think, thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's kind of nice for the secret, you know, that they kept for all those years to be out now and you know it's just a, a really a wonderful thing you know so often secrets that you keep for an extremely long time are pernicious secrets you know this one was really one that could be could be celebrated um and so you know on the day uh that betty betty's book actually came out and her book is called the burglary the discovery of j edgar hoover's secret fbi it's really a wonderful uh wonderful book deeply deeply researched um betty's book came out a little ahead of the film and you know, we sort of held our breath because there was uh, a considerable amount of press then uh, it was on the front page of the new york times um they were on the yeah, there was a segment on the today show and those journalists you know, Betty and I had never gone through the front door of the FBI to, to let them know what we had done. I mean, we had been in touch with their archives to try and find certain things, but we had never said, you know, explicitly we're, we're investigating the media break-in. Um, but those journalists who were reporting on, on the story did have to ask for comment from the FBI, and their response was, you know, we're a different institution today than we were back in the 70s, um, partly as a result from, of the revelations in the mid-70s. So while they didn't reference the burglary directly, um, they do, you know, make reference to to the church committee hearings, which is which is something we haven't talked about. I mean, this is really the sort of tail end of the film. Is that ultimately, you know, once Carl Stern forces the release of the COINTELPRO files, uh, and then you have, you know, the, the the investigations swirling around Water Watergate at that point, um, the Congress uh, convenes uh, hearings, and both the House and the Senate. Uh, in the Senate, they were known as the, as the church committee hearings, um, which looked at the uh, activities of all the intelligence agencies, and it was the first time that any, uh, the U.S. Congress certainly had done that, and pretty much anywhere in the world it had happened. Very extensive uh, investigations that 
um, you know, in their conclusions, really, uh, you know, took the FBI to task over what they had done. Um, and, you know, they instituted the first set of guidelines governing the FBI's behavior, amongst other things. And they instituted, a, you know, a 10-year rule for, for the FBI uh, director. You know, no longer could there be a director that stayed in there for 50 years. So they've been all this, you know, that those, those results were irrefutable. The FBI couldn't, you know, couldn't. Hello? Indication that they weren't going to be prosecuted. So that was a giant weight off. Um, and then, to be honest, I mean, sort of so, so going from that and, you know, the concern about them being potentially being prosecuted, uh, we went to, I, I received a call one day from John, Representative John Conyers' office, a Democrat from Michigan, and he said, you know, his staffer told me that they were, they'd heard about the book and the film and they, they wanted to know more about the story just and um, educate themselves. So long story short, this past June, we had a screening on Capitol Hill. Um, so it was really kind of we'd come full circle at that point. Um, John Conyers joined us. We had many staffers and and a lot of uh, nonprofits who work on the issues of you know uh, surveillance, civil liberties, um, freedom of speech. So it was a really terrific event. Well, congratulations! Well, thank you. Yeah, That's yeah, thank you. I mean, like I say, I mean Conyers was was has, his office has been remarkable. I mean. Conyers also took to the floor and, and read in basically uh, again earlier this year, basically read in a commendation of their actions. So it was just the diametric opposite of what you know I had imagined. You know, all these four years of making the film. So thank goodness, and it's 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 just very gratifying to see them recognized in this way. I also liked the fact that almost all of the people, all, almost all of the eight people, had service jobs. They're they're they were intent on either teaching, uh, improving people's lives. That's what their jobs all had in common to me. So they really care about America and about its growth and education of, of other Americans. You're so right. You're absolutely right. Um, that's exactly what they were, who they were, who they still are. Um, educators, uh, you know, who are interested in sort of, you know, changing public policy for the better, uh, improving society. And um, Don mentioned earlier, you know, Two of the individuals, I mean, several of them had small children, but two of them were a married couple, you know, with three children under 10 at the time. And so they really risked everything. I mean, they had made arrangements. They hadn't said, you know, the uncle was going to take care, one of the uncles was going to take care of the children if, if, if they had gone to prison. Um, and their response to people, you know, I think they anticipated potentially that the biggest backlash, um, people hearing about them and, and thinking, um, you know, how can you possibly have put your children at risk in this way? Um, they haven't really received any of that. You know, a couple of people might feel ambivalent, understandably, um, but their response is, you know, when you are a parent, you have a double responsibility to society. So you're exactly right, right Carol. It's a that, that that sort of imbues their 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 every you know living being. Right. Well, what are you working on now? I'm excited to hear. So uh, I, I'm working on a couple. I'm executive producing a couple of films. One uh, deals with a fantastic, um, both loosely to do with with women's rights. Um, one deals with an amazing um, public art project in China, um, and the other deals with the uh, last abortion clinic in Mississippi. Um, and then I have a couple of other projects of my own that I'm developing, um, and hopefully I look forward to hopefully coming back on the show to talk about those in the future. Please, yeah, please send Carol and I screeners as soon as you got them. Absolutely. So, well, th well, thank you, Joanna. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks so, so much for having me. Okay, Carol, yeah. Cla Claire? Yeah, and, and Carol, did you have any last words? I just wanted to say you're so talented. We really thank you very much for all of the film that you shared with us, and we thank you for the work you're doing to raise the consciousness for everyone. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, I got to make the film. They did all the work. <laughs> Great job. Well, thank you, Joanne, and thank, thank you, so Claire, much. And for a wonderful show. Wonderful. Well, Thanks so much. A pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Be well, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. 
create your story structure and your trailer, legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.